You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Welcome to the Strong Towns Podcast. This August, we hosted a week of content on our website focused on suburban poverty, exploring the causes and effects of the suburbanization of poverty in America. Today, we have with us special guest, Elizabeth Kneebone, to speak on this subject. She's a fellow at the Metropolitan Policy Program at Brookings and co-author of the book, Confronting Suburban Poverty in America. Her work primarily focuses on urban and suburban poverty, metropolitan demographics, and tax policies that support low-income workers and communities. Elizabeth, welcome to the Strong Towns Podcast. Thank you for having me. So let's start by going back a few decades. I wanted to ask when you think that the concept of suburban poverty first was even acknowledged, and when, when was the first research starting to be done on this subject? Well, you know, the the reality is, even though it kind of runs counter to our popular perception, poverty has always existed in the suburbs from their from their initiation, from their first birth and development in this country. There have always been poor people that were a part of the suburbs. It's just that it's only been more recently, in the in the especially since the two thousands, but even in the in the preceding decades, that we saw the the pace of growth in the poor population. Uh, begin to pick up in the suburbs. And then it was in the 2000s that we really passed this tipping point so that for the first time there were more poor residents living in suburbs than in big cities. And I feel, you know, there's, there was a recognition uh, in terms of the research and the literature around, around poverty in the suburbs. In the 90s and early 2000s, there was a lot of great work done by a number of researchers like Myron Orfield, Rob Puentes, Lucian Phillips wrote a great book about poverty in the suburbs, about distressed suburbs. And in particular, that work tended to focus on older, entering suburbs, particularly in the Rust Belt, in the Midwest and Northeast, older industrial areas, um, where you had a number of these entering suburbs that were very urbanized. They were affected by sort of industrial transformations, economic transformations happening in a lot of these regions as manufacturing declined, as the steel uh, industry declined. And a lot of these places were, you know, dense, very urbanized, uh, very close to the central city, exhibiting a lot of similar challenges that urban areas have long dealt with. I think what we saw then later in the 2000s, and a lot of what of the work that I have done has, has focused on is those challenges are, are persistent. Those still exist in those inner ring suburbs that have, that have struggled for longer with these challenges. But we really saw, particularly in the last decade, uh, a rapid growth of poverty even beyond those inner ring, more urban core type suburban communities. So uh, what we saw is almost every major metro area experienced a growth in their suburban poor population over the 2000s. And that that growth really touched uh, those older entering places, middle tier communities, and even exurban communities on the suburban fringe, more communities that we tend to think of as typically or stereotypically suburban in that sort of leave it to beaver middle class 
kind of vision, I think, that is often evoked when people talk about the suburbs. So really what we just saw is that that poverty has become more of a regional phenomenon. It's touching a lot more people in places than before. And a number of communities that I think people long thought were immune to these sort of trends are, are now also sort of struggling with the challenges of poverty. What got you interested in studying this topic? You know, I didn't set out to study poverty in the suburbs. It really was the the numbers, just the especially the rapid change that we saw in recent years that called my attention and and that of my colleague Alan Ruby that really led us into to delving into this area of research more deeply uh, and and following it until we in fact ended up you know writing a book about the the scope of work that we had undertaken. And you know, part of it is I think that with this rapid growth that we saw, particularly since 2000, you know, the poor population in suburbs grew by 65 percent between 2000 and 2014. That's more than twice the pace of growth that we saw in big cities and the urban areas that sort of uh, are the anchors to these regions. And now, you know, there are more than three million more poor in suburbs than in cities. Even as of 2000, that wasn't the case. There were still the majority of poor living in in cities. So the magnitude and the rapid pace of this trend really begged a lot of questions, trying to understand what uh, what was driving these trends, what were the implications of this sort of shift, and to try and unpack the experiences of different types of communities, because it is something I feel like that is, is less understood or less less studied in, in quite the detail that we've seen in the in urban areas and urban poverty, which has, has long been a challenge, and I think a, a, for that reason, a, a more deeply explored topic. In your book, you discuss sort of three main topics, how poverty became suburbanized, what the impacts of this suburban poverty are, and then what some steps forward might be. Let's talk about the first one. What do you see as the main causes of suburban poverty based on your research? I think there are a number of different dynamics that sort of work together to help drive up uh, the numbers that we've seen and the growth in, in poverty in suburbs that we've seen particularly in the last 15 years or so. Some of this is about more poor residents moving to suburban communities. Uh, But I think an even larger piece of the story is about uh, the sort of downward trajectory or downward mobility of suburban residents who may have always lived in the suburbs but uh, became poor over time. On the first piece, that sort of movement to the suburbs, I often think that sometimes that gets even more attention because maybe it's more visible as communities are changing you know, as, as, as new populations may be moving into communities, it's sometimes more visible than that longer run decline or, or some of the economic impacts we've seen more recently. But a lot of that, that movement is, is driven by things like, you know, where is affordable housing located within regions? Some of this speaks to in some markets where there's been a lot of redevelopment in cities, you know, housing prices have risen. There are you know, sort of housing price pressures causing people to look further out in the region for more affordable communities. But we know that's only a sort of small piece of this larger puzzle. Some of this is also about uh, suburban housing that has aged into affordability over time as it's gotten older and people with means moved out to newer communities or moved back into the city. You have these communities that maybe were once unaffordable becoming more affordable to lower income families. And also the use of subsidies, especially you know, we've, we've seen a shift towards more portable housing vouchers as a way of delivering subsidies. And those are meant to offer people choice, you know, the ability to, to move to different communities. And, and we've seen, you know, a, a shift over the 2000s to where now about half of voucher holders in major metro areas live in the suburbs. 
and also, of course, in terms of housing, you have the impact of of the housing crisis. You know, the subprime boom in the mid two thousands. About three quarters of loans in our major metro areas that were subprime were made in, in suburban communities. And after the collapse of the housing market, about three quarters of foreclosures took place in suburban communities. So that also affected and helped shape these housing markets and, and, and these trends. In addition to housing, you had jobs suburbanize over time. And some of the most suburbanized sectors and industries are in you know, service industries, retail, construction, manufacturing. So industries that may have lower paying jobs, but also ones that were hit hard by the Great Recession and the sort of economic downturn that took place in the late 2000s. And, you know, in addition, a lot more of the, the low-wage workforce in, in our, my colleagues did an analysis, about two-thirds of, of lower-wage workers in our major metro areas live in suburbs. You know, part of not just what types of jobs are available in a market help influence these trends, but where those jobs are located and where the workforce for those jobs uh, live matters as well for, for sort of how poverty distributes within regions. Uh, one of the topics that interested me a lot because I come from a like social service background was the fact that you guys talked in your book about how suburbs have been harder to reach with social services and that they're not the existing networks of nonprofits, soup kitchens, homeless shelters, things like that to help people. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. Even before talking sort of about these the impacts or implications of these trends, I think one other piece I would just mention and what's helped drive these trends over time, you know, I think is often first top of mind is the Great Recession itself, right? The you know deepest downturn since the Great Depression, and that definitely helped exacerbate these trends. We saw the numbers really spike following uh, the onset of the Great Recession, and you know spikes in, in unemployment. Um, and in many ways, because of the housing-led nature of the downturn, suburbs bore the brunt of that downturn more so than in past recessions, uh, particularly in the first year or so of the of the recession. We really saw unemployment in suburbs even outpace the growth that we saw in cities. But they really saw a very similar sort of impact cities and suburbs over the course of the recession. But it's a, a mistake to think that is that that is what really drove this tip towards the suburbs, as in if we put all the blame on the recession, then we think once we get into recovery, then this will tip back, right? Suburbs will rebound faster, or this was just a momentary blip. And that that's just really not the case, because we've seen structural shifts in the economy as well. The typical household income was falling even before the onset of the Great Recession. We've seen a real shift towards lower paying jobs in, in sort of service sector parts of the economy, you know, we look at some of the occupations that are most likely to grow or grow most quickly in the next 10 years, you see things like home health aid, uh, or childcare providers, you know, jobs that may only pay $20,000 a year for someone who's working full time. And if you're raising a family, that's, that's not enough to, to get you above the poverty line. And a lot more of those jobs, as I mentioned before, are, are in suburbs. So that's all to say that, you know, even as we get into recovery and start to see the recovery really trickle through and take hold, in the poverty numbers overall, uh, which has been has been very slow to happen in this recovery, but the idea is you know suburbs haven't bounded back more quickly, and in fact are likely to continue to see the challenges of poverty persist alongside you know the the urban challenges that we continue to address in these regions, and that really brings us to your question about the safety net. So what are the challenges that that sort of new geography of poverty 
raises. And I think one of the one of the immediate challenges that we saw, particularly in the wake of the recession and this rapid growth of poverty, is that the safety net tends to be less developed in suburban communities. There just isn't the same history of, of building up that type of resource in many of these suburban communities, the, the same level investments that we've seen in cities over time often haven't been made in these suburban communities. So you see fewer, you often see fewer providers located in the suburbs to begin with. They may be smaller or stretched over a larger area, you know, serving a much more diffuse population or multiple jurisdictions uh, with what services they're able to offer. The, the continuum of services in the suburbs often tends to be patchier than what's available in cities. So you may not have, you know, if you lost your job in the, in the downturn or need, you know, uh, assistance with retraining or, or connecting to a different employment opportunity, you know, many suburbs may not have that, that sort of workforce type of or job training provider there. Or, you know, we saw, in many cases, food banks or food pantries were sort of the canary in the coal mine in many of these communities, seeing real rapid increases in demand for services. And we heard more than one anecdote you know, from providers we talked to over the years of people who used to donate to these services now having to come and seek help. And really, the, the strain that many of these providers were facing, you know, their budgets may have been hit by tighter local budgets, by cutbacks in government services, you know, philanthropy often is less present in these suburban communities. And some research that our colleagues have done on where philanthropic dollars go, they still tend to disproportionately go to urban areas, the sort of, you know, central city, as opposed to suburbs, even in regions where there are now more poor people in the suburbs, because some of that comes back again, it's a chicken and the egg challenge about capacity. You know, if you don't have providers who can be competitive for philanthropic grants, it's hard or government grants. It's hard to get more resources flowing to these communities. But we also see relatively few dollars being dedicated to building capacity in these places. So then it makes it really hard to figure out how to break that cycle and and grow the capacity that's necessary given the scale of need many of these places are facing. Yeah, I found that point about the lack of philanthropic dollars going to the suburbs. That was really interesting to me. Obviously, part of that is historically, we think of urban areas as being more poor and having more poverty. But do you think that part of it might also be that poverty is less visible in the suburbs? Like people are still living in a single family home. They still probably have a car, even if they are fairly low income versus in an urban area, you know, you see a homeless person sleeping on a park bench and things like that. Yeah, I do think that that, and you know, this is something we've heard from providers too, that part of the challenge with attracting more resources to these communities is exactly that, both popular perception of, of where poverty is and where it exists within regions, and the, the sense that just the built environment or the way these communities have developed over time may make it more hidden, may make poverty more hidden. You know, you may have a business or charitable donations that are being, you know, someone who lives in your suburb who are giving their donations to the central city or to another part of the region because they don't realize the extent to which need has grown in their own community. So in a lot of a lot of instances, providers are, are just trying to deal with a sort of first order education challenge to make sure that funders, both philanthropic, corporate and individuals uh, really understand 
the sort of geography of need and the way that, that it may have shifted and in some cases quite rapidly in recent years so that they can can start to sort of attract more resources to these these really under-resourced places. So you mentioned the built environment, and that's something that we talk a lot about at Strong Towns. One of the topics that seemed very prevalent in conversations about suburban poverty was the transportation issue. The fact that suburbs don't have a lot of transit options or bike options or safe walking options. How does that affect the suburban poor? It's a top priority. It's a top challenge in many of these communities that, you know, it's one of the first things that we hear about in in talking to communities who are grappling with these issues. And some of the research that we've done has shown, you know, that there, when you look at things like transit, public transit tends to be less available in suburban communities in the first place. And then the actual, if you look at headways or how often, you know, there's a bus coming to that bus stop, there are often more limited schedules and the connectivity can be much lower than what exists in urban core where, where urban cores where transit may have been more invested in or, you know, the, the denser development patterns more readily serve those types of transit connections. So it can be harder to get to jobs via transit, uh, let alone all these other services that we know are less present in the suburbs and may be more spread out to begin with. So it can really exacerbate a number of, of challenges in trying to connect to both jobs and the, and the types of wraparound supports that can help uh, low-income families weather downturns in the economy or, or you know, try and get a, a more stable footing as they're looking to you know, work their way out of poverty. You mentioned safe walking. I mean, this is something that's that people, I think, often don't think about. And the transit or infrastructure conversation that we've spoken with suburban school districts that talk about the difficulty of serving unincorporated parts of the county where there are no sidewalks, you know, and trying to be able to make sure that their students have a safe way to walk to school if they they don't have other transportation options. Uh, And that, you know, especially when you're looking at unincorporated parts of the county, who's the voice, who advocates for the low-income families or who takes on these sorts of issues of, of infrastructure to to create a safer built environment that helps people connect to their you know day-to-day needs. It really does raise this question about, you know, being poor no matter where you live is a challenge, but there may be sort of unique challenges, unique hurdles that have, have to be overcome when you think about poverty in a suburban context. Continuing on the transit topic, you shared a statistic that I found surprising in the book, which is, I'm just going to quote right from the book, that 77% of working age residents in low income suburban neighborhoods have at least one transit stop serving their neighborhood within three quarters of a mile, end quote. But you bring up the fact that that doesn't mean that you know, the bus is going to a place that most residents need to go. It doesn't mean that it's going to be reliable and showing up at frequent intervals. I've certainly, when I've been driving through a suburb and seen a bus stop, it's always surprising because I have a perception that there's no public transit, but yet this fact that sure there might be a bus, but it's not uh, necessarily going to be super helpful for everyone there. I thought that was a an important point for sure. That's right. And, you know, if you think about the schedules, you know, that it may be not only that the headways are long or that you're waiting an hour between when the bus comes, or maybe the bus only comes during rush hour in the morning a couple of times and rush hour in the evening a couple of times. So your your window for actually being able to access that resource is limited. But then layer that on top of the fact that, you know, like I, I mentioned before, if two thirds of the low wage workforce are living in suburban communities, 
you know, these are workers who may not work typical nine to five schedules and likely don't, that they may need to get to work at night or on the weekends or those off peak hours where there may not be service at all. So, so that coverage number tells you something. And I think it's an important sort of context for this discussion, but it really is not, it's not enough to just have the bus stop in your neighborhood. It really does matter the way we connect people. And in fact, what we found in that, in that research uh, as well is if you look at that 77%, you know, what share of jobs, if you have a bus stop, if you have a train stop, what share of jobs in the region can you reach in 90 minutes? The shares were much lower. It was about, you know, one in four jobs for the suburbs compared to over 40% of jobs if you live in the urban core. What part of that number it re- reflects is that if you build a, a system where many, you know, older markets are, for instance, built this way, where you have a hub and spoke kind of transit network that's really designed with the idea that pe- bedroom communities in the suburbs want to get into this the urban core to work downtown. So you have this sort of city to suburb connection. But we know more and more, you know, as jobs have decentralized, as population has become more suburbanized, that there are job centers in the suburbs that would require you to make a suburb to suburb commute. Because again, a lot of the affordable housing may not be in the part of the region that has the biggest job corridors or job centers. And those types of connections can become almost impossible in many markets. Uh, which again, just make make transit uh, not an option at all because of the way the sort of system is networked. When we had our week kind of focused on suburban poverty on our website, a couple of people wrote articles for us about the transit issue and specifically talking about the fact that even when you do have busing, it's still a challenge and not as feasible as it is in urban areas because of the way that the suburbs are designed. Even if you like put your best foot forward and try to implement a good busing system, people are still so spread out that it's very hard to serve everyone in an adequate way. And as you mentioned also, yeah, those historic models of like all the buses converge in the downtown and then everyone transfers to go somewhere else don't really work in the same way in the suburbs because they're not always designed around that central hub. That definitely, yeah, seems like a big challenge. That's right. And I mean, I think that's the public transit system that does exist in suburbs. It can be transformative for people living in those communities. It really is a lifeline. We, in the book, talk about a suburb in, in Houston, Pasadena. One of their organizations, their neighborhood centers, was working with the community. The transportation piece really clearly rose to the top of the list. Is like, this is a key challenge. We're kind of cut off from from transit options. So just being able to put a bus line in to a nearby transit hub made a big difference for that community. It really helped give them connectivity that they didn't have before. And likewise, you are, we refer to, to Penn Hills in the book, which is a suburb outside of Pittsburgh, where they really felt the impact of cuts to bus line services, because, you know, again, that was the sort of lifeline, like that connectivity to to the rest of the region. At the same time, it is you, not all suburbs are going to be able to be well served by transit. It, is, it may not be the efficient option. So it's also thinking creatively about what other what are other total transport. What does a total transport strategy look like that can make the most of transit, where it can be efficiently used to help connect people to different nodes and parts of the region. But then also, what might other transportation options be within these regions to make sure that we're um, helping people overcome some of the what we would call a spatial mismatch between where you know they may be able to afford to live and where economic opportunity lies in the region. So we've talked about the transportation challenges. We've talked about the social service challenges of reaching the suburban poor. What are the other main 
impacts and challenges that come to mind for the suburban poor that you guys discovered through your research? When you think about meeting the needs of a growing poor population, the two that we discuss are really are often the first thing that communities are thinking about or trying to grapple with, you know, the transportation connectivity, and then figuring out how to make sure people are making, getting access to really needed services. So those, those are the sort of immediate near term, how do we meet the needs? The challenge looking beyond that is as we think about long term, how to make sure people get to a point where they don't need safety net services really is a, is a longer term, broader strategy about connecting people to economic opportunity. So through education and training options, uh, but also understanding how land use decisions, um, you know, governance decisions, investments in housing, transportation and economic development all sort of work together to, to affect access to opportunity, you know, through the built environment. And a lot of, you know, what we talk about is this need for more cross-cutting strategies that uh, that really look to play that longer-term game, you know, to, to connect people to economic opportunity so they have the opportunity to work their way out of poverty. And it also means not just cross-cutting from a policy perspective, you know, from thinking about not just transportation as a silo or housing as a silo, but how those policy areas interact and intersect. It's also thinking across jurisdictions and jurisdictional boundaries. Because, you know, one of the questions I think are challenges that, that, that quickly come up when we think about the lag in resources in the suburban context, the, the lag in capacity that's needed in these communities is are we playing a zero-sum game? So is, there's, is the suggestion then that you take resources away from the city and, and give it to the suburbs? That would just be a mistake. <laughs> and, and that would be a very short-sighted interpretation of what these trends mean. If anything, I think it really underscores the regional nature of these challenges and, and also aligns with the reality of the regional labor market. You know, these labor markets don't stop at the city boundary or the suburbs. We're, these are metropolitan areas because they're regional labor markets with, you know, interconnectivity across these jurisdictions. This is what I would say as we think about what is the right way to distribute resources, to address these sort of challenges, to think about how to overcome some of the capacity gaps in some of these communities, that it calls for, for a more regional sort of approach as well, you know, so that we, uh, rather than, than saying either or, or playing a zero-sum game, are figuring out how to back the most effective and efficient strategies at a, at a better scale for addressing these issues. Did your research mostly focus on the impacts of suburban poverty for the, the individuals, or did you guys study at all like the impacts for, as you were just talking about, regional governments or like suburban governments? How does poverty affect the area as a whole? I feel like this this debate comes up, and we we bring this up in the book that that when we start discussing how do you address this, that there's often a sort of a false choice or a debate that comes up between people based strategies versus place based strategies. You know that's too simplistic and and again not really an either or thing. Uh, so we talk in the book about how do you even as we think about what we traditionally would term people based programs, it's understanding how those types of investment intersect with place. And that how can we be more effective with our traditional place-based investments as well? And it, and it kind of calls for a more comprehensive approach. And so by nature of that, 
you know, it, it really calls us to think about some of the governance challenges that come with trying to address these challenges in the suburbs. The fact that many suburban landscapes, uh, particularly in older industrial areas and, and older regions, are really fragmented. You know, you might be talking about hundreds of jurisdictions that are trying to grapple with a challenge that is much bigger than any one border or any one, you know, jurisdiction. Again, this sort of brings me back to why why we're sort of really calling for this more regional frame that gets above that that sort of very parochial, very fragmented map, because these challenges really do sort of cut across so many types of places. And the idea that, you know, economically, these are really regions that sink or swim together. You know, there's, I think, been a lot of great research and discussion about why you don't want a city to be pitted against the suburbs. You know, the central city is having a healthy core is really important to having a healthy metro area. I think with this research sort of then pushes that conversation to expand to say you also don't want your suburbs to atrophy, right, or to become distressed as well. That becomes a drag on the broader regional economy, the competitiveness and health of the metropolitan region. So it really is now, again, getting past these sort of too simplistic either or discussions to, to think more collectively about how you create you know, healthy and competitive regions. So what are some of the steps forward that you guys have thought about through your research? What are some ways that we can start alleviating suburban poverty? Writing the book was a great opportunity to spend a lot of time in different regions across the country who these trends may have played out somewhat differently, but, uh, but we see common themes sort of emerging from so many different markets that are, that are sort of grappling with these issues. The most innovative thinking and sort of forward-looking models we've seen developed on the ground by local actors, by regional leaders, while they came from different places, right, the leader wasn't necessarily the same in each market. Uh, the focus of the intervention wasn't necessarily the same in each market. Uh, you know, in some cases, you had a strong nonprofit taking the lead. In some cases, it was a consortium of municipal governments uh, or a strong uh, philanthropic funder or a very strong you know, collection of school districts. So you, you see the leadership coming from different directions, and, and it may be focusing on things like housing or education as a leading sort of issue area um, or uh, community development. And what we really focus on in the book is informative is that there seem to be sort of three common characteristics of these models that I think help sort of pave the way for what is what is more modernized approach to, to dealing with poverty in place look like, given the scale of the challenges we're talking about today. And I guess that that sort of suggests that we need a new model. <laughs> and I think that we do, we, we make the case in the book that that we do. We need to, you know, sort of the, the approaches that we have built up over decades since the war on poverty, really, of addressing poverty in place, have left us with a pretty fragmented array of programs that aren't always easy to navigate, especially if you're a smaller community, you know, kind of coming to these challenges newly or for the first time, uh, or dealing with at a scale you haven't dealt with before. When you have that lack of capacity, it's really hard to, to sort of navigate this very fragmented array of programs. The other challenge is that a lot of these programs were built with distressed inner city neighborhoods in mind and don't actually map very easily onto the suburbs uh, in many cases. So it's a fairly inflexible system that doesn't really respond or recognize the scope and scale of today's need and the diversity of places that are really grappling with these issues. So that brings me back to, so what are the three 
key elements that we've seen in some more innovative on the ground models that could really inform state and federal policy around place-based anti-poverty programs. What we saw, number one, is that these models are figuring out a way to get to a better scale, whether whether in, in, in the scope of, of services or, or issues that they're addressing or, or geographically, they're getting to a better scale. The second element is they're, they're figuring out ways to be more collaborative and integrated, getting us back to that sort of cross-cutting, whether it's across jurisdictional boundaries or across policy silos. And, and that's very related to scale as well. They're figuring out how to sort of collaborate and integrate. And the third piece that we really noticed was this figuring out ways to fund strategically, given the, the strain on budgets at every level of government and even, you know, philanthropically, that really one pot of money or one, one funding stream isn't, isn't going to be enough to tackle a lot of the, the, the scope and, and, and depth of these challenges. So figuring out a way to diversify funding streams uh, bring in public and private support and sort of braid it together. And often, you know, to be, use that money effectively, it's figuring out how to work with data effectively. How do you use data to help target where interventions are needed and what types of services are needed, but then also to measure what's working uh, so that, again, you can keep trying to use the limited funds that we have more effectively and efficiently. And we've seen these sort of principles applied in a number of different ways in a number of different markets. But I think those three key features really suggest a sort of different way of moving forward, that you can allow for more flexible approaches that, that target the sort of shifting needs within each market with those sort of principles at the core. And the, and the fact that you are trying to, to measure what's working and chart what's working and bank on, on successful, strong uh, providers and models, uh, but then give them a lot of flexibility in the way that they pursue the strategies needed across a real diverse array of places. So you noted that there are like several broad trends that we can see in many different types of suburbs that are experiencing poverty all over the country. Have you seen through your research that suburban poverty is disproportionately affecting one demographic or a set of demographics more than others? Or is it a pretty varied group of people who are experiencing this? It's such a diverse place. And I think part of that reflects you the fact that suburbs are really a diverse array of communities. Not all suburbs look the same or are developed in the same way. What we've seen is that when we quote unquote tell the story of suburban poverty, you can tell any number of different stories Whereas I think a lot of times the popular narrative or the media, you know, narrative often tends to focus on, especially post-recession, the the new poor. You know, it really paints this picture of uh, a formerly middle middle class family who fall on hard economic times and are now having to seek safety net services for the first time, or or really come to terms with being poor for the first time. And that story exists. That absolutely exists. And it raises a, a particular set of challenges with how do you make sure those families are connecting to the safety net services they've, they've never used before. They may not uh, be aware of that they, that they can benefit from. That's a real, that is a real narrative that's happening in a number of places. But there's also generational poverty in the suburbs. There are communities where uh, you have pockets of concentrated poverty. You know, we've seen the negative effects of that often in an urban context, but increasingly those types of very poor communities that sort of limit access to opportunity, those are growing very quickly in the suburbs. Uh, and some have been there for quite some time. So that's a very different experience than that sort of first narrative that I think we often hear about more often. There are also, you know, increasingly 
new immigrants are bypassing cities altogether and moving to the suburbs. And the ones that are you know, struggling with economic hardship, that again calls for a different set of policy prescriptions, or at least a more tailored set of policy interventions that takes into account cultural competency and integration goals as well. So there are just so many different experiences of poverty in the suburbs that I feel like are, are worth bringing to light because they really do have, uh, at the end of the day, explicit policy responses that may be different or need to be tailored in different ways to meet the same end of helping these residents and families connect to the types of economic opportunity that get them out of poverty over time. Well, that reminds me, I did want to ask you about, um, you mentioned generational poverty. Have you seen or noted the experiences of the elderly who are living in suburban areas and are there particularly challenges for them? Yes. So, there are now, as I mentioned before, more poor residents living in suburbs than in cities. That's true across age groups. That's true for children, for working age adults, and for elderly. And in fact, the elderly skew even a little bit more, the elderly poor, towards suburbs than those other age groups. There are, again, a, a specific set of challenges that come along with that as well as someone's aging in the suburbs, potentially in a house they've lived in for a long time. Many of these communities, again, weren't built with the same sorts of infrastructure supports or services that are often more readily available in cities. So as a person is, is aging and maybe loses the ability to drive, uh, it can be very isolating in a suburban context. They may not have been able to afford a car in the first place, and they get to a point where they can't drive themselves around anymore if there aren't transportation services, if there aren't safety net providers or, or other sort of community services that can help the elderly connect with you know, food supports that they need or medical services that they need. You know, there's a, there's a sort of infrastructure around aging that may not exist in a suburban context. And I think we see a lot of communities around the country really grappling with that, especially as the sort of the boomers age. Uh, and we see a larger number of, of the elderly in suburbs of all income levels. It's raising infrastructure questions and service questions. And then within that demographic, the poor are even more constrained. Uh, so again, I feel like that's that's a challenge that many communities are already facing, and it's only one that's going to continue to grow as the population continues to age. So at Strong Towns, we focus a lot on municipal finance and debt and this concept that we call the growth Ponzi scheme, which is the way that many towns and cities and suburbs have implemented uh, large public infrastructure projects that they plan to pay for with debt, but they might not be thoroughly calculating the maintenance costs that are going to come due, you know, 20 or 30 years later when that infrastructure starts to deteriorate. Suburban roads and subdevelopments are a great example of this. They're built in anticipation of huge growth and population increases. They're these huge wide roads, these subdevelopments that are built, you know, 50 houses at a time that might not have a plan for who's going to move into them. Couple decades down the road, everything starts to deteriorate and then, you know, the suburb is looking more shoddy and there's not enough money in the property tax to pay for that maintenance. Is that something that you guys, you know, notice as like having any intersections with suburban poverty? Is that related to you? Well, I would say to the extent that when that life cycle happens, that changes the sort of home values that changes, you know, what's affordable, right? And 
you know, I, I think this is in a way that a lot of these issues intersect in so many ways that that if you sort of build this up without the ability to maintain it, then as things begin to deteriorate, people with means move away, it, housing prices decline, it opens up opportunities for low income families to move in, but there's still not a plan in place to then upgrade, you know, keep up the infrastructure. And that's where I feel like the challenge, you run the risk of building a new pocket of poverty, right? The sort of disinvestment that we've seen transform a lot of urban cores decades ago. I think a lot of suburbs are are struggling with this. And and in a way, it it creates, again, challenges we've seen before, but in a new context that may bring even more barriers, right? Because if you now have this pocket of poverty uh, that is becoming disinvested, it's becoming more distressed over time, but now that pocket of poverty isn't in the urban core where it may be close to transit or maybe close to services. Instead, it's on the outskirts of the metropolitan area. In some ways, it's even more isolating for the residents who live there to be able to connect to to where the jobs are, where the services are that they need. And it raises real questions about how do you how do you finance the basic services of this community? And again, that intersects with something we, we talked about before, the sort of the jurisdictional map of these places, the sort of governance challenges that can come from a fragmented development pattern where now if this is if this is a municipality of 20,000 people that begins to lose population and, and decline, what's the viable model moving forward then for how they meet the growing needs of their community, let alone their, their basic services that they need to pay for in terms of you know, safety and schools, et cetera. Uh, so I think it, we see in those sorts of development patterns, the intersection of, of, a, of a financing model that maybe is, is not sustainable with the, the jurisdictional fragmentation that can complicate the capacity needed to deal with challenges that then intersect with a changing demographic or growing low-income population that have particular needs. Together, that creates a lot of challenges that we're seeing in, all, in suburban communities across the country. Not, again, not all suburbs are in that category, but that is one particular tier of sort of distressed suburbs uh, where if we don't think more regionally about how to change that trajectory, really run the risk of becoming some of these uh, very isolated, distressed pockets uh, that may in fact uh, just contribute to this generational uh, cycle of, of, of poverty and distress. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me and for doing this pioneering research in the first place. What are you working on now or what's up next for you? Um, so we have a, a number of projects, all that are continuing to try and understand how, uh, in some way, how the built environment, how the, how the sub-metropolitan map uh, intersects with poverty and opportunity and access to opportunity. So we'll continue to study poverty trends and and again, just as new data become available to understand how this trend is shifting over time, how concentrated poverty is changing over time across different types of communities. We're also looking at, you know, how investments in, in different types of infrastructure affect access to opportunity. So soon we'll, have, we'll be putting out a report, for instance, looking at broadband at the neighborhood level and how access to, to broadband may vary across different kinds of neighborhoods and for different parts of the population. So uh, for uh, racial and ethnic minorities, for the low-income population, for um, you know, different age groups, and in different parts of, of the region. So again, thinking about how that, that affects access to opportunity. Uh, and we're doing more work on on uh, regional affordable housing strategies as well as we think about you know balancing housing options, investments in revitalizing areas, 
opening up opportunities uh, in lower poverty, higher opportunity communities, um, what are the types of regional cross-jurisdictional tools that are being developed and have proven successful in helping to create a sort of more balanced distribution of affordable housing? Great. Well, that sounds fascinating. I will continue to follow your research. Elizabeth Kneebone, thank you so much. Her book is Confronting Suburban Poverty in America. I highly recommend it. It is a fairly quick and very readable, informative piece. So thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. Thank you for having me. Take care. We need your help. If you think the Strong Town's message is important, don't keep it to yourself. Pass it on. You can get more information and sign up to be a member of Strong Towns at strongtowns.org. Drastic times require what? Drastic measures, yes! Who said that? They know that America's one big pothole right now. Bill, 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 Bill. That's the story. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Who made the city? I like you. I like your vision of the of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit Agenda 21. Yeah. 